Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Before we begin this episode, I want to let you know that it's about suicide. If you're experiencing suicidal thoughts or feelings or know someone who is, we've compiled a list of resources on our website at deathsexmoney.org. Ask for help. Suicide is like a virus. It hits one and then it'll go and go. I mean, there are about 100,000 veterinarians in the United States. It barely fill up a football stadium. We're such a tight-knit group that when one person goes, I mean, well, if they can't do it, how am I going to do it? This is Death, Sex, and Money. The jobs that we do are so incredibly stressful. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. And the human-animal bond has gotten more intense. And need to talk about more. Nobody wants to say it, but I'm not afraid to call it what it is. I'm Anna Sale. I met Dave Wilson at his home in the Dallas suburbs. My producer, Katie Bishop, was with me. Nice to meet y'all. Would you like a beverage or anything? I've got a cherry Coke. I've got... We settled into his living room, screen door open. Dave leaned back in a leather recliner. I sat on the couch beside him. Harry, No. I'm sorry, he must see an animal outside. It's That's the only okay. time he barks, he's not a barker. <laughs> I went to Dave's house to talk with him about his older sister, Marnie Mullins. She died on May 21st last year. She was 44. The last time I texted her was a few weeks prior to her passing, and I never got a response. Hmm. She went dark. I think that she was arranging things for whatever writing she may have seen on the wall. She wanted to protect the people who were closest to her and let us get used to her not being there all the time and every day. And then, you know, maybe it would hurt less or maybe we would miss her less. She was wrong. How do you like to remember your sister? I like to remember my sister... As a person who just really loved, I won't even qualify it, she just loved. Marnie especially loved animals. She was a veterinary technician who'd cared for sick pets for more than 20 years. I know that common sense says a veterinarian's clients are the people who come in and pay the bills. That is not how my sister would have described it at all. Her clients, her patients, were the animals. And, like, that was just how she viewed it. Marnie was a part of the tight-knit veterinary community in Dallas. Last spring, that community was left reeling by a series of suicides, including Marnie's. How do you think about how her work either helped or or cause stress in terms of mental health issues? 
she was already dealing when we were young with depression and feeling uncomfortable in a world that didn't seem to feel like home to her. Mm-hmm. And I think that caregiving is likely a field that you might find a lot of people in who are missing some of that acceptance and they want to provide it to someone or something, in this case animals, almost in a, in a, in a way uh, to compensate maybe for what they don't believe they've been given. Yeah, a sort of tenderness. Right. Putting these guys to sleep just rips you apart every day. It's not happy puppy stuff. And then the stresses of clients not able to pay veterinary bills. What happens is then you you burn out. For the past several years, veterinary medicine as a whole has been grappling with a suicide rate that's one of the highest in the healthcare profession. Honestly, I struggle on a weekly basis even now. A recent CDC survey found that one in six veterinary school graduates say they've considered suicide. And a British study found that veterinary suicide rates are four times higher than the general population in the UK. Sometimes we don't have enough time to reflect or take care of ourselves. But those statistics seemed distant from the Dallas veterinary community until April 14th of last year, when a 32-year-old veterinary technician in the area killed himself. A few weeks later, Marnie, Dave's sister, killed herself. And two days after that, a 40-year-old veterinarian named Shauna Chastain died by suicide. And what drove those suicides were probably on a lot of our minds. But we just pushed through the chaos of a busy veterinary practice. At this emergency veterinary hospital in the northwest Dallas suburbs, that chaos can be 24 hours a day. They see the sickest pets, like Lady, who was brought in by her owner. Lady is your girl? Yes. This dog came in weak, and the vet discovered a mass in her spleen. She recommended surgery and further tests to see if it's cancer, which could mean chemo. Um, but at this point, the only way to... You know, to, to, to get her more time with us would be a blood transfusion and surgery. Mm, so, I'm just wondering how much all this end up costing. Yeah, it's a good question. The vets and vet techs here don't just provide medical care. They also discuss the realities of finances. Off the top of my head, you're probably looking at four to $7,000. And they help pet owners make the ethical call of when to intervene and when to say goodbye. Okay, let's go ahead and give her some blood and get that spleen out. She's okay. a great dog, so we can swing it. So. Okay. At this clinic, there were no suicides among the staff, but many of the vets and vet techs here knew the people who died. Um, I knew both Dr. Chastain and Marnie. Dr. Julie Ducote is a vet who owns this emergency hospital. 
She didn't just know Dr. Chastain and Marnie. She'd worked with them in the past. And she worried about how their deaths would affect all the people she works with now. It feels like everybody's a family, and so the things that affect one of us seem to kind of affect everybody else, too, or at least several other people. So I was worried about it. Were you at all reluctant or hesitant to use the word suicide, talking with staff out of a fear of, you know, triggering someone who was vulnerable? Did you feel comfortable openly talking about suicide? I, in the past, I didn't because I did worry about that. I don't know. I had in my mind that, you know, if, if we talked about suicide, that people would get depressed. People would get sad, you know. And um, I might have said, how are you feeling? How are you doing? But I wouldn't necessarily have directly asked them um, about if they had thought about suicide or if they considered taking their own life. Have you had those kinds of conversations? Um, I have with a couple people. <laughs> so, and, and again, I, I wouldn't have done that a year ago. Hi. I'm nice Kelly. to meet you, nice Kelly. Nice to meet you. Down the hall at the hospital, I met Kelly Bishop pushing an anesthesia machine toward the operating room. I know everything there is to know <laughs> about every anesthesia machine in this building. Kelly's a vet tech and a manager. Like everyone on staff at this hospital, she was dressed in scrubs. And I always make sure my hair is disheveled to make it look like I've been working my ass off. I mean, I really have been, but it's just a theatrical move. Vet techs are basically nurses who tend closely to all the animal patients. In the Dallas area, their pay typically starts at about $15 an hour. Kelly says it's not unusual for her techs to work more than one job. Probably 40% of them work two jobs. How many hours a week do you work? Approximately 65. That's a lot of hours. I mean, I guess. I usually work an 11 to 12-hour day, or almost 13-hour day, yeah. I think a lot of, many of us in this industry are dysfunctional. You say that with a smile I on do. your face. Because I, I, I put the fun in dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly has worked in Dallas vet clinics for a long time. Years ago, at another clinic, she worked alongside Marnie, Dave's sister. She remembers that same tender heart. If you could imagine the perfect fluffed bed for a cat with a little piece of kibble or something, it was always with a little Marnie touch. She was a free spirit and a good soul. What are the particular stresses for veterinary techs that you work with that make it taxing on on their mental health? Besides the job? (laughs) We're like, what, what is it? The technicians and nurses deal a lot with the client and moral stress. We try to keep doctors out of money talks. Mm. <laughs> so having financial conversations with the client is is hard. And then relaying that information can be, I kind of want to protect the client here, but I also want what's best for the dog or the cat. But the doctor's going to want to run these tests, but the owner can't afford it. How can I make the best of both worlds happen 
the technicians and nurses have those conversations? A lot of them, yes. Yeah. That's hard. It can be. How much exposure to death do you have? Just every day. Whether it is pulling up a euthanasia solution for a doctor, whether it's actually administering the solution, um, whether it's putting a body in a bag and then putting it in the freezer. In some way, I'm, I'm involved somehow multiple times a day. Multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. And I, I forgot the count, but every day we're supposed to go through the sympathy cards, try and write something in it, get it to the front staff for them to send off. But I think there was about 20 of them in there that have accumulated at least this week. And where does the animal, is this where the euthanasia happens? How does it usually Well, if it's a cat or a small dog, they can hold them on their lap. But we usually bring a mat in, and then we cover it with blankets, and um, and people lay on the floor with them, you know. Yeah. The person showing me this room is Sandra Brackenridge. She's not a vet. She's a social worker on staff at this hospital. When she started her career 30 years ago, her work focused on pet owners dealing with loss. But most of her time now is spent working with the staff here. Stress is in the environment. It's that fast pace. They'll do a euthanasia and not stop, and they go right to the next case. And so there's, you know, no processing of it. Um, uh, veterinarians witness death more than any human medical professional. It's five times more than any human medical professional, including hospice workers. And so, so. Uh-huh. you think about it as, as compared to human medicine. Um, so, veterinarians are also funeral directors. They also do euthanasia. And so they witness death that much more. And also what I see is that veterinarians and veterinary technicians develop a comfort with death, uh, a, a lesser degree of death anxiety than other professionals. And so if you're used to death... What does that mean? Does that mean you fear death less? Does it mean mm-hmm. it, it? Yes. Is, and does that? Do you make the? Does that? Is that at all correlated with like when you're stressed and need to escape? That suicidal ideation is something that you go to. I think it contributes, but that's my opinion. I don't think that there's research to, to substantiate that yet. Um, what I notice also is that. Um, People are attracted to this field in the first place because they love animals. They don't necessarily love humans, but they end up working with humans and alongside of humans. And with humans, there's all kinds of things that go on, right? So sometimes there's communication problems. Sometimes there's conflict. Sometimes there's a screaming owner in your face. That can be quite traumatizing. So in my position, sometimes it's hard for me to get people to come and talk to me because they've told me I don't like talking face-to-face. 
Hmm. So what I've done in those situations is t- I text a lot and I, you know, it might be through email or, you know, um, it's not that they don't want support. It's that that human thing is uncomfortable. All this sounds familiar to Kelly Bishop, the vet tech supervisor. I didn't realize how I could spiral or how much of a roller coaster ride it could be. Dealing with people is so much more overwhelming than performing anesthesia on a really sick dog. Completely different. I guess because it's selfish, it's, it's a reward that I did that and not necessarily... talk somebody out of driving off a bridge. Have you had to do that? Yes. Was that recent? It was this year. Coming up, I talk with another veterinarian in Dallas who is dealing with all the daily stresses of the job while mourning a coworker he worked alongside for years. Every day I go in to see her desk where it was. There's someone else sitting there, but I still know it's her desk. Um, And it's just, it's tough. It's tough. first started thinking about veterinarians and suicide back in 2016, when we heard from a veterinary social worker in Canada. She wrote to us, I have such deep regard for my veterinarian colleagues. I just wish the rest of the world understood what they experience and how they struggle. And last year, veterinarians and suicide came up again when we were putting together our series about student loans. One vet in Georgia writing about her loans said, there have certainly been times where suicide seemed very comforting. It was soon after that that producer Katie Bishop heard about the series of suicides in Dallas. So we went there to hear how this community was coping in the aftermath and to understand more about why this happened. What we learned is there isn't a clear-cut answer to why suicide is so prevalent in veterinary medicine. The limited studies that have been done are focused on veterinarians, not vet techs, but they back up what we heard on the ground in Texas, that high expectations from pet owners, euthanasia, debt, and low salaries all could contribute to the increased risk of suicide. Researchers also point to personality traits commonly found in the veterinary profession, something we also heard from Dr. Julie Ducate in Dallas. The kind of academic achievement they have to attain often selects for individuals who are very, very driven and perfectionistic and potentially more introverted. And those traits have been um, associated with higher rates of depression and suicide. In the U.S., research is ongoing to document and better understand how the risk of suicide differs by occupation beyond self-reported surveys. 
We partnered with the Dallas Morning News on this episode. They visited the same emergency hospital we did and put together a photo essay and video about the stresses that veterinary workers face. You can find a link to that on our website at deathsexmoney.org. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. 
Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Dr. Matt Murphy is a partner at a veterinary clinic in Dallas. We met him at his home on one of his rare days off. His two Cavalier King Charles Spaniels greeted us at the door. What are your names? Max and Perry. Max and Perry. Matt was wearing socks with dogs on them, too. I have hunted everywhere for a Cavalier King Charles socks that fit a guy. There's girls everywhere, but no one, apparently no one wants them that's a guy. Matt has been practicing veterinary medicine for 19 years, 13 at his current clinic. I can't imagine doing anything else. Uh, I go to work every day with a smile on my face. I'm happy. Um, I mean, literally, my staff is like, you're the, one of the happiest people I've ever met. And just because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. But this last year has been really difficult at work. Matt's very close colleague, Dr. Shauna Chastain, was one of the people in the veterinary community in Dallas who died by suicide. When I was told, I mean, I was just numb. I mean, I'm like, okay, I gotta go to work, gotta figure this out, gotta do the job, because still have to take care of the animals, still have the business to do, still have to take care of my kids. And at the same time, I, I have a hole there that I'll never get filled. So you had to go to work? the day you found out? Yep. Uh, it was my, um, I, I was going anyway, uh, but yeah. And um, we had appointments. Fortunately, it wasn't that busy of a day. Um, but yeah, we had to still see patients. We still had to keep the business going. Um, I didn't really take a day off for it. I couldn't. And uh, in some ways, that was good because I can bury myself in work and let the grief, you know, settle. Uh, instead of having time to just sit there and just wallow in, in the grief. How long did you work with Dr. Chastain? I knew her for 10 years. I worked for her about seven or eight. Um, and uh, the best veterinarian I've ever worked with. And an amazing friend. Um, just the most gentle, sweet person I've ever known. It's just, it was tough. Still is. Uh, talking about it just, it just opens those wounds again. So um, I got a lot of closure, though, um, at, the, at her funeral. I was uh, the pallbearer, one of them. And that helped. I do get over I need a puppy. Um, but it helped a lot. It gave me a lot of closure. But at the same time, <laughs> hi, buddy. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Um, uh, just an amazing soul. It was, it was probably the single hardest thing I've ever gone through. Ah. Were you aware that she was struggling? Yeah. Uh, the day before, she talked to me and she had said that she had had thoughts. I thought I had actually talked her out of things. And 
you know, I, I was like, yeah, she seemed in a good spot. Um, and apparently she was not. Do you think, do you feel like given the awareness in the veterinary community of, of the risk of suicide, do you feel like you know enough or have had professional training enough about how to help your colleagues? No, no, not at all. Uh, It's all stuff that you've had to figure out or do. Um, I wish I had some more training on that to help. Uh, are more resor- known about the resources that we have. And I wish that, you know, that I'd known where she was at that time. I w- I, anything I could have done to stop it. Have you had any counseling? Yeah, I did. Uh, I talked to the counselor you talked to, the social worker. I talked to her twice. Um, did you find it helpful? It was. I'm not the best person to counsel because... Um, I mean, they're like, how are you doing? I'm sad. Are you having bad thoughts? No. I mean, they have to draw everything out of me. I'm not, it's not that I'm not forthcoming, but I just don't know what to say. When I start talking about it a lot, that's when it starts just building up inside. When you start talking about it a lot, it makes you feel worse? Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah, it just makes me sad. Uh, and it's not a sad, like, th- that's one of the things with being a veterinarian. Um, Death is a part of life, and it's part, part of something that you have to deal with. And that's why I think some veterinarians must think it's okay, because we see so much death every day. I mean, uh, that's also the reason why we have such a high suicide rate, I think, is because we're successful. Uh, we know what to do. Uh, we're, not go- we're not fooling around here. We're, if they're going to do it, they're going to do it right. They have access to drugs that will do this. Um, In the case of Dr. Chastain, was hmm? it, did she use drugs? I think so. I don't know what she took, and I'm afraid to... I, I, I don't really want to know. Uh, some of my staff have said more than once that they just want to think that she made a mistake. and She was just taking some pills to make her feel better or sleep, and she overdosed. And I'm like, she didn't. I know that. I, I, know this, I knew this woman to a T, and she was not that. To make a mistake like that would never happen with her. She knew what she was doing, unfortunately. So it's possible that she used drugs from your clinic? I think, uh, no, we counted. That was the first thing I did. Matt says Shauna had access to drugs outside of the clinic because she bred dogs. An autopsy found several drugs in her system, including ones commonly used in animal euthanasia. Since her death, Matt and his colleagues have dedicated the surgery suite at their clinic to Shauna. Matt says it was her favorite place to be. Andy told me his staff has had several meetings to talk about Shauna's death and how everyone's doing. I mean, my boundaries at work have been violated. <laughs> like them asking about every aspect of my life because they're afraid that, you know, I would follow suit or something because I was so close to her. I'm like, guys, I, I, I can't do that. I, you know, one, I, that's not me. But two, I have two, I have too many other responsibilities and when push comes to shove, suicide is a very selfish thing. Um, it's your thought, you are more important than all these other people you're in effect. I think if Shauna had actually seen how many people she would have affected, she wouldn't have done it. Uh, she was too caring. She would have seen how much her family was upset, how many other people. I mean, her funeral was 
packed. There must have been four or 500 people there. There was standing room uh, just because of how many people whose lives she impacted and meant so much to. And I think if she had seen that, she wouldn't have done it. It hurt a lot. And I'm just, right now, uh, as far as the grieving stage, uh, the stages of grief, uh, I'm in anger. Uh, I'm pissed at her. I still am. And everyone's like, well, you got to work through that. I'm like, she took my best friend from me. How can I forgive her right now? So that's where I am. Just, it's just, I haven't forgiven her for taking herself away. Because she did. Work continues at the vet clinics across Dallas. Back at the 24-hour hospital, the staff is there after this dog chewed a battery out of the back of her remote control. That battery. Yeah, she got herself a little, little acid burn, it looks like. A little bladder acid burn. The skin's peeling away. Oh. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. We're done. And we're done. And we're done. We'll get her do you feel like the Dallas veterinary community is in the midst of a crisis? I don't know. This is Dr. Julie Ducote again, who owns this emergency vet hospital. I don't know. I do. I don't know if it's a crisis or if it's that we're more aware of it, you know, um, and it's been there all along. That's I don't know the answer to that. I think I think that. I think people have had problems and I think people have struggled for a long time, but I, it may be that we just haven't talked about it or been aware of it before now. Soon after the suicides in Dallas, Julie and the hospital social worker Sandra Brackenridge organized a public meeting of the veterinary community called Not One More Colleague. They hoped to organize regular support groups for vets and vet techs in the area with the help of the State Veterinary Association, but they haven't met since. And since we talked to her, Kelly Bishop, the vet tech and supervisor at the emergency hospital, has given up her management duties. She says she needed to for her own mental health. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Thanks to Christina Martinez for her help on this episode. Our interns are Catherine Hsu and Angeli Mercado. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And thank you to our reporting partners at the Dallas Morning News, especially Terry Langford, Leslie Eaton, Marsha Allert, and Vernon Bryant. They produced a video and a beautiful photo essay all about the hidden stresses in the veterinary field. You can find a link to that at our website at deathsexmoney.org. There, we've also compiled a list of resources for suicide prevention. If you're considering suicide or if you have a loved one who you think might be, please reach out. The Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 
8255. Suicide is a preventable form of death. You know, a person is only acutely suicidal for a few minutes to a few hours. If they get intervention during that time, they statistics show they may not ever be suicidal again. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back.